Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. We are recording on a day where hugely significant and worrying news has been released. And we're not just talking about the news that Aaron Ramsey might sign for Rangers. Sue Gray's report has been released and the findings are damning. Joining me this evening is Richard Mine. Hello, Rich. Hello, Matt. And Kerry Davis. Hello, Kerry. Evening, both. Evening. The, you've been following this Sue Gray release um, pretty closely all day, Matt, and I think you're probably best placed of all of us to run through what has she concluded and where are the gaping holes in the report that we should expect to hear about more in the future? So the report found uh, failures of leadership and judgment in number 10. Uh, it also found that 12 of the 16 parties that were recorded in the report are being investigated by the Metropolitan Police. It's it's worth noting it's not the full report. Obviously, certain parts of that are being held back by Metropolitan Police whilst they do their investigation. PM came to the house uh, to do a state to make a statement. So obviously, there was the typical calls for him uh, to resign. I don't think he'll do that. But it's very interesting to see where the the findings of this update, as it is not the full report, will see the threshold met for a vote in no confidence in Boris's Tory leader very much hostages to fortune recording this on a Monday when uh, <laughs> when anything could happen now. But um, so on the on the statement, the PM came to the house, made a statement. He apologised for the events that occurred. But obviously that was very, very short lived. And he started to go into complete fight back rebuttal mode um, before he went into fight back rebuttal mode. Uh, he proposed reforms to the number 10 leadership structures and special advisor codes reform to uh, number 10 operation and the cabinet op office operation turning number 10 into its own department with a, a cabinet secretary uh, he then you know turned to all the amazing things the uk government has delivered like getting brexit done and the vaccine rollout um he also at one point seemed to infer that the entire uk labor front bench was on drugs which was a very interesting part of the uh, of the statement other interesting things that happened during that statement ian blackford was named i.e he uh, basically he called the PM a liar, or, or he said he misled the House. Uh, we're not allowed to do that. So he was kicked out of the chamber by a man with a sword, uh, which, you know, the fantastic modern democracy in which we live. Uh, Keir Starmer was very good, I thought, in uh, response to Boris. He basically made the whole House fall silent. Uh, you, yeah, I know it's very hard for me to say that, usually, Rich, as you usually know, but he was very good, and the Tory benches were listening to him. Boris you know, through some sort of Jimmy Savile jab at Keir in response. And a lot of conservative backbenches, backbenchers and very, very senior backbenchers, including former Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, were asking very hard questions of the Prime Minister. A number of Tory backbenchers asked the, well, one of the backbenchers asked Boris Johnson if he was a fool for, you know, not meeting friends and family during a time of uh, bereavement. Uh, Caroline Lucas asked that the ministerial code be reformed to ensure that the ultimate arbiter of that code is not the prime minister themselves. It makes sense, really, because that's the current situation. But yeah, I think that the broad takeaway is that he's still under a huge amount of pressure. The sheer amount of Tory backbench MPs who were not supportive of him would make, would make I think, his office a little worried. There were a number of uh, Tory MPs who were giving him the nice, easy look at what we've done during your time as Prime Minister questions. But after a while, after about an hour and an hour or so of the statement, 
there was just no Tory backbenchers willing to stand up and support him. It was all opposition MPs just constantly asking him to resign, asking for specific details about the, of, the, of each party. But yeah, I'd say it's very worrying. And I don't think that he'll necessarily feel like he will need to go. I think he won't resign. I think he, but I think very much a question now of whether this very disappointing performance by Boris Johnson in the House will lead to enough Tory backbenchers putting in uh, letters of no confidence in him, which would trigger uh, a vote in his leadership. The really horrible thing about this whole situation is that everybody knows the reality on the ground. Instinctively, not just everybody in the UK Parliament, but anyone who's following this story knows that Boris Johnson and Number 10 more generally were quite obviously not a following the same rules as the rest of England um, and, and, you know, transpose that onto the wider United Kingdom for the sake of argument. That's, I think we can move past the point at which that's even in remotely in doubt. So this is clearly not a question of right and wrong, because we all know that he was in the wrong. And the deal, as, as many commentators will have been saying for forever, that the Conservative Party has transacted with Boris Johnson is, we'll put up with all of your stuff, all of your rule breaking, all of your frankly not being prepared, all of your impulsiveness, if you keep on winning. And it's always been suggested that the party's relationship with Boris Johnson will change as soon as he is no longer a winner. And that kind of feels where we are right now, because, you know, Conservatives are behind Labour in the polls and, you know, support for the Conservative Party is very clearly on the slide. But until such time as he has been proven to be not a winner, do you think that they will stay with him? Very interesting question, that, isn't it? And it's why I think that a lot of Conservative MPs are waiting for the result of the local government elections in May to see whether he is now uh, toast electorally. Because, of course, if a vote of no confidence is triggered in him now prior to those elections, he'll be safe for 12 months. In a sort of weirdly perverse way, you could see why Boris actually might want a vote of no confidence in him sooner rather than later, one he thinks he could probably win, which would buy him another 12 months. I mean, he may then get absolutely hammered at the locals and be a sitting duck waiting to go for a period of time, but at least then he would, in his own mind, I suppose, have the opportunity to try and rebuild some of his uh, legacy or, well, not, maybe not legacy, just the hope of hanging on. In the context of, as you mentioned earlier, Keir Starmer, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed to hear you praising Keir Starmer. Actually, I think that might be the first time that I've ever heard you heard you do it. And it, it's almost like that his time has come uh, as the boring legal straight man uh, to uh, Johnson's comic uh, enterprises. It does provide at last the contrast, the point between them, that puts Starmer on the side of the vast or a greater proportion of the, of the public or certainly the, you know, the people who are completing the polls. If you were in the position of the Labour Party in the UK Parliament, do you think you would want Johnson to stay in office but not in power? Or would you like him out and face somebody who could be better, a tougher opposition or a weaker opposition, depending on who the Conservative Party chooses. A couple of points I want to make here, right? So Starmer, yes, you know, very, very rare for me to, to compliment him. But you see from across the political spectrum now a feeling that 
he is just far superior and would make a better prime minister than Boris Johnson. I think you've got people like Alex Massey, who's this editor of The Spectator in Scotland and a Times and Sunday Times journalist saying he looks prime ministerial. Not, I imagine, someone who is usually a, a supporter of Keir Starmer, albeit for probably slightly different reasons to me. On the question of whether you want Boris to stay, look at it from a Labour perspective. He's very unpopular at the moment. If you go into an election with him as the Tory leader, it's very possible that the Tory party get a kicking. But also on the same on the same issue of electability, this is the guy that two years ago won seats in places the Tories never thought they'd ever win. So he does have a proven track record of, of, of being an election winner. There's nothing to say that he wouldn't go into May, be a fantastic campaigner in the, uh, during that period of time, and keep seats they should otherwise lose. What, one thing that's been put to me a lot in the last few weeks when this has all been going on, relating to whether Boris should stay in power as a lame duck prime minister or whether he should be, we should, Labour should be trying to get rid of him, is that what the attitude of Johnson and the way he treats democracy, the way he treats parliament and the nature of government and accountability erodes our norms so much that he does damage to the very foundations of the system by remaining in place. And that in of itself makes it much harder for Labour to ever govern when he's gone. So personally, I think if you're Labour, you want him gone because the damage he does to the norms of our society and our democracy, but also just in case he manages to turn it on during an election and win seats that the Tories shouldn't win. I think they, I think they want him gone. They've taken a gamble in their head that they think that whoever follows Boris will inherit the same economic problems that Boris has, will still be tarred a little reputationally by everything that's happened during this and won't have long enough to clear the deck and to rebuild the Conservative brand before the next election. What I sense about the Labour Party in London and the Starmer Labour Party is that when the Labour Party is a long way from power, it fights amongst itself terribly. But what I've noticed over the last six months or so, a lot of that internal friction seems to have subsided because what, what they're now gearing up for is, hey, there's a realistic chance that we might actually be in government again. So let's put, you know, brush those under the carpet and turn all our fire across the chamber. And do you think that's being effective? I mean, it's all very well, Boris and maybe his successors, but particularly Boris at the moment, him being an electoral drag on the Conservatives is a new thing. It's a new phenomenon. But do we know that the Starmer project is necessarily attracting wavering voters, maybe the voters that voted for Boris in 2019, to the Labour Party? That's the question that I'm kind of curious about. It, yeah, it's a very good question, Rich. I do think a lot of Labour support is very soft. You see discrepancies between polls where they offer don't know as an option and those who don't offer don't know as an option. And in polls where there is don't know as an option, i.e. you don't have to pick either Labour, Conservative, Liberal, Democrat or whatever, and Labour leads are larger. So there's a lot of people who would otherwise vote Conservative putting don't know. But in polls where there isn't a don't know option, i.e. you and therefore you have to pick Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, etc., the Conservative, the, the Labour leads are much smaller. 
which leads me to believe that when push comes to shove, I do think a lot of people who voted Tory last time or historically voted Tory, albeit very annoyed at Boris now, would still vote Tory. And I don't think you're seeing a huge uh, jump of Tory voters to Labour voters. I mean, you're seeing Tory MPs becoming Labour MPs, but I'm not, see I'm not sure you'll see Tory voters become Labour voters in the same way. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lead. There's still a lead there for Labour in those polls, but it's not that big. And I think it's the sort of kind, it's the kind of leads you saw people like Ed Miliband have over Cameron during the 2010 to 2015 parliament. So I, I do think Labour support is very soft. One very, very encouraging thing for Labour and something they should really be uh, very happy to see is the way in which the, the two main questions that make people's mind up when they decide which party, Tory or Labour, they're going to vote for to form the next government. And that is who would be the best prime minister? in which Starmer is doing much better. I think probably because Boris is doing so bad. I wouldn't say that's necessarily a safe bet that that would be the safe. That would be the same if this dress or Rishi Sunak or whoever, uh, Tom Togenhat maybe, went into that role. But it's, it's encouraging. And then the other question is the economy, competency and trust on the economy, in which Labour is doing very well. I saw a poll today where asked whether they would like Prime Minister Johnson and Chancellor Sunak or Prime Minister Starmer and Chancellor Reeves in charge of the economy, uh, the Labour option there did significantly better than the Conservative one. So those are two areas where it is very, very promising for Labour. But again, there's no guarantee that that would be the case should the Tories change their leadership team around. You're very quiet, Kerry. Uh, do you want to join us and uh, share your thoughts? My thoughts will be brief, gents. You know, I, I just think the whole party gate affair is just something which is, is incredibly serious. And if you're someone who suffered or lost family or friends um, from COVID, I've no doubt that you are appalled about what Sue Gray's finding. I, I, I just fear that so much is going on in the political world at the moment and it's been overshadowed by Partygate. You know, we're probably the closest Europe has been to war at the moment with what's going on in Ukraine. And that's just not getting a look in due to drinks in Downing Street um, during COVID. And then you've got a national insurance rise in April, which it, it is in the media, but it's nowhere near where it should be. Because in terms of what my politics is interested in, how things are going to hit people in the pocket and people who, who are really going to get hit by the national insurance rise, it, it's just not featuring at the moment. It's just not one of the the sticks which I think those who oppose the Conservatives should be beating them with, because I, I really think in April that is going to be, you know, quite a hit for a lot of people in this country. And those are the things I think we need to be, be looking at a little bit more. And there's more, you know, the Liz Truss £500,000 flight around Australia, just my head drops, but I'm just not able to keep on top of all of these things. But I do think Partygate is overshadowing an awful lot, which we might want to look at as well. So what's next on the agenda? Yeah, I 100% um, agree with you, Kerry. I think that the, the cost of all of this dis distraction, which comes from the fact that Boris Johnson is prime minister in spite of himself, you know, he's he's been he's been put there to do something by his party and they've been willing to take the compromises for so long, you know, that he's quite frankly, obviously not up to the job. 
but he's there because he won an election. You know, a cynic might say it's very easy to win an election when you're not necessarily wedded to the truth. It's very difficult not to think as Johnson as essentially cosplaying his way through his being a prime minister. He is not taking it seriously. I don't think there's any evidence that he's ever taken any of his jobs particularly seriously in terms of the effect that it has on other people. I mean, I'm sure he takes them very seriously in terms of what pays for his, you know, comfortable lifestyle. But one of the key things, and Johnson himself played this card in uh, the House chamber last week, I think. He was uh, throwing back criticisms, trying to downplay his flaunting of COVID regulations by saying, oh, there could be a war in Eastern Europe. And it was just, frankly, disgusting. It really brought his premiership into a serious disrepute because there are genuine, these are genuine real world issues. And it always reminds me a little bit like Trump, you know, Trump would rail against various things when he was president. But as, as the moment something actually real happened, he crumbled because he hadn't, he couldn't deal with it. You can't deal with reality. And the idea that Boris Johnson is going to lead, uh, you know, a, a Western NATO uh, defence of democracy and civil rights against an armed military incursion by an authoritarian Russia. You know, Johnson and the front line of international relations. This is a man that could be ambushed by cake. You know, he is not going to be good in the face of Russian military might. It really grates with me because, you know, for, whether you like him or loathe him, you can look at Mark Drakeford as First Minister of Wales and you can say, you, you know, I, I completely disagree with your view in the world. And, you know, uh, Andrew R.T. Davis has been doing this rather publicly today, talking, I would say, tongue, hopefully somewhat firmly in cheek uh, about socialism and individual liberty. You can disagree with Mark Drakeford, but you look at the man, he definitely takes the, his responsibility and his sense of duty as First Minister seriously. And the fact that since 2019, we've had somebody who has been the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom who has evidently not taken the job seriously, just like he didn't take the job of being Foreign Secretary particularly seriously. It brings the all of these institutions of state into, into shame. And for me, the dividing line between and I'd say British politics, it's primarily English politics, but British politics is going tragically in the same direction of uh, uh, the United States. We're past the point where it was left and right. We're past the point where it was remain or leave. We're now at the point where the dividing line in politics is, do you feel a sense of shame or do you not? And if you don't feel a sense of shame, quite frankly, as the last few years have proven, you can get right to the top. If you're a Conservative MP, and you know we all know quite a number of the Conservative MPs, certainly it's the ones from Wales, some of them are really clever, astute, earnest, hard-working people. You, you can disagree, and I'm sure many of our listeners do, you can disagree with you know, the core roots of Conservatism, but to see people like that kind of now feeling obliged through a sense of party loyalty or could be ambition, various other things, has been known before. Someone might sacrifice their sense of moral morality for, to further their own ambition. But to see good people kind of come into the gravitational pull of this shameless pit at the centre, which everybody, everybody knows has no moral foundations whatsoever, is, is just disappointing for me. I think it's I'm sufficiently old enough to remember the 1990s. 
this is giving me big 1990s vibes. I remember the uh, back me or sack me John Major um, stuff just about. I was, to quote uh, Roger Scully, I was a very unusual child. I remember watching all that stuff. And, and this is th that same thing again. There is a stench of corruption and a stench of sleaze around the United Kingdom government and the Conservative Party in Parliament right now. And that will just stay there until someone comes in and sweeps it out. Now, whether that can be, I nearly called him Keith, Keir Starmer, sorry, or not, I don't know. But I just think that we have passed the point at which any of this is salvageable. They might limp on, you know, Boris might limp on as Prime Minister for some time past the elections, could even be, you know, I, I hesitate to invoke porcine metaphors here, but uh, um, David Cameron famously did call him the greased piglet because you can never get your hands on him and he always squeaks out of things. That's possible. He may stay as Prime Minister for some time, but the decline, the rot is in there. And it's a question now for people to decide what do they want to do next? There's a question for the Conservative Party. And you mentioned Tom Tugendhat. That strikes me as a man that at least has some moral character and would be able to stem the flow, so to speak, for, for a period of time and may even be a success. I don't know, that might, that might be possible. But I think also the electorate, on the assumption that they're all allowed to vote by the time we get to the next election, uh, as we are heading Americawards in this regard, I think people will make a very, very clear decision um, come the next uh, UK-wide election on this. And it's all self-imposed on behalf of the Conservative Party. And I don't, I, I will never understand people sacrificing fundamental tenets of what makes something credible and good for short-term gain. I think that is, that is, we've seen it before, we'll see it again, and it just always ends up being a bad idea. Uh, Tuggenhart's a very interesting character. Uh, Tuggenhart has huge respect across the whole house. My former employer, Paul Flynn, was, was incredibly fond of Tom Tuggenhart, thought he was an exceptional parliamentarian. Um, the one major thing going against Tom Tuggenhart, obviously, is that he's never held ministerial office or even shadow ministerial office, but he has been a fantastic chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So, it, it, again, it would be, to me, though, Tom Tuggenhart feels a little bit like the Rory Stewart choice of the of the Conservative Party. You know, will will be incredibly honest about what he feels and probably won't uh, uh, skirt around what he actually feels in order to win over conservative support, which means that his election is unlikely, basically. Um, but he would be an interesting choice and one I think that really, really could turn the tide on the on the way that, to at least the public anyway, the, the way that conservatives are viewed. Yeah, he'll do a great job of de Johnsoning uh, the Conservative Party while being leader of the opposition. <laughs> I suppose fundamentally, then the question is. For, for Wales, I guess, is is do you think that all this quote-unquote sleaze or moral rot, as you put it, Rich, do you think this will have a massive impact on the amount of Conservative MPs that we see in Wales? What we know is that there will be fewer Conservative MPs in Wales, for sure, no matter what happens, because we'll be having new boundaries in Wales, new constituency boundaries. We will be losing Conservative MPs, Labour MPs and Plaid Cymru MPs, no matter what, because we'll just have fewer MPs. This feels so much like the 1990s to me that I think it's very possible we might see another 1997 moment. The, th the two things that are really different that I think 
perhaps might mean that some MPs uh, from the Conservatives, and I'm thinking probably people like Faye Jones in Brecon and Radnor, possibly Stephen Crabb in whatever Pembrokeshire ends up looking like after the um, boundary review. I think the difference for them is that they're not sufficiently high profile to be able to motivate a campaign against in the same way that you might, for example, like Virginia Crosby in Ernest Morn, the atomic kitten herself, um, or, or perhaps, what's his name, Rob, Rob Roberts in Dallin. I mean, that's a man whose parliamentary career is rapidly reaching its end anyway. But also they have natural constituencies there that the, the boundary changes will probably help them. And the key difference really thereafter is that the Liberal Democrats are not the force that they were. And in those constituencies uh, on the border, you may have expected the Liberal Democrats to be able to win some of those seats. At the next election, there's a strong likelihood that there will be proportionally far fewer Conservative MPs than uh, than there are now. And I wouldn't wager this. I still think that there will be a few, probably Monmouth, whatever the POIS, South POIS seat ends up being with it, Faye Jones, I think she will keep her seat, possibly Craig Williams as well. Um, and probably Stephen Crabb in Pembrokeshire or Simon Hart. I don't really know how that board is going to shake out. But um, yeah, far fewer. The question is really, without the Liberal Democrats being a real force, and without perhaps the kind of sense of things are very likely to improve, uh, new Labour uh, enthusiasm, maybe that the, the forces are not quite strong enough yet to be able to, to get to that point. But, um, but yeah, I, I think we're close. And I think, you know, all of this is just like, it feels like I've seen this film before, uh, but this time it's in 4K. Terry, obviously you grew up in the what used to be the former heartland of the Lib Dems in Wales, Powys. One thing that's always put to me is that the more electable the Labour, Labour Party feels to be as a, as a UK government, the better the Lib Dems do, because people don't feel scared to elect, to, to vote Lib Dem because it might let in a, a, a Labour Party that's too left-wing. When you grew up in Powys, did it feel as though people were voting... Lib Dem because they were real passionate liberals or was it because they felt comfortable voting Lib Dem knowing that the Labour Party that they would be electing was not one that would rock the boat too much? I think we discussed this on a pod before. I mean, I, I'm thinking that both those seats with the right candidate would probably go back Lib Dem. I don't know, looking at the, the social media in the area now, I'd say the Lib Dems kind of activist side of it is really quite strong. It's... Uh, they're doing well based on quite a strong presence in the, the local council. They've got people on the ground, although Jane Dodds did get the name of a street in Hay wrong this week, which caused a bit of furore on uh, Facebook. I, I, I can see them going back the other way, but, you know, everything you've just talked about, it, I just think it's so far in the future, even with polls, it, it's hard to make a call about where things are going to go. I think there's time for conservatives to dig things out of the the hole they're in get a ladder the right leader climbing out i i do think your your premise of the labor position does alter people's and not just in the the two powers constituencies i think it alters voting patterns 
uh, elsewhere uh, about how people vote and what they think they might end up with both locally and then in terms of the administration that might end up in power. So I, I think it is all to play for. I, I still think certainly Brecken and Radner with the right Liberal Democrat candidate is is back in the frame. But uh, we'll see who they who they choose and what the lay of the land is at the time we have an election. I I, I think we've we've done Sue Gray to death, gents. I, I think everyone's probably had enough of that. But it has overshadowed a lot in UK politics. I don't think Wales has really featured in any kind of mainstream media in any meaningful way. There must be things going on in the Senate, Matt, which just has slipped under the radar. Anything you want to bring to our attention? Well, it's interesting, Kerry, because you're right. Everything seems to have been hidden behind this Sue Gray cloak, really. Welsh issues haven't really been busting through into the news. I think, you, I know you talked a little, about, a little bit about the cost of living crisis, et cetera, and not getting a, an airing properly in UK politics. But there's one thing that's really, really uh, been at the forefront of a lot of Senedd question sessions is what the Welsh government can do to alleviate the cost of living crisis. You actually see a lot of Welsh government ministers now taking steps to write to the UK government to try and alleviate some of the pressures, especially on energy bills. Um, you, it's obviously no surprise to anyone who knows which, power, which party is in power in uh, Cardiff Bay that they're also really quite perturbed about things like the cost, uh, the cut to universal credit and the impact that's having on the cost of living. So I'd say that the major focus in the last few weeks in Wales has been on the economy. Um, obviously, you've got the draft budget going through the Senate at the moment, and that's, seen, that's set to be debated, I think it's next week. So I think that the old adage, it's the economy stupid, has really, really been at the forefront of, of debates in, in Wales. But you are right, it has felt quiet. And I think that's because all the political oxygen has been sucked out by the Sue Gray report, uh, like we've done today. And like other news sources and podcasts in Wales have done as well. It's just because it is the dominant issue of our politics at the moment, because it is kind of fundamental to whether the Prime Minister of the UK, who, whether you like it or not, is the most uh, important or highest elected figure in UK politics. It determines whether he stays in his job or not. So you see why people are focused on it, but it's going to continue that way until this issue is solved at Westminster level, sadly. We, have we had peak Sue Gray? We've had peak Omicron. Have we had peak Sue Gray? Uh, what do you reckon, Matt? Reckon? Uh, I, think, I think we've had peak Sue Gray until there's an update or until mm. something happens. So if, if, this, if this update, and it's like I said, we are hostage to fortune recording and not releasing straight away, mm. is that and if something happens now and there's a huge confidence vote in, is a confidence vote in Johnson, then no, we haven't had peak Sue Gray. If we have to wait until the update to the update, to finally push him over the figure for uh, letters to the 1922 committee. No, we haven't reached peak, peak Sue Gray. But if this is the end of it and nothing more comes and the Conservative Party fall behind him, mm. then, yeah, probably we have seen peak Sue Gray. But like I said, until this is sorted one way or the other, I, I don't think anything else is really, really going to break through unless something horrific happens between Ukraine and Russia. Have we moved on from peak Sue Gray? Into the realms of the dick now? How they respond? Uh, yeah, so you're talking about uh, uh, um, Cresta Dick, are you? Is that what you're uh, referring to? Let's, um, 
it, you're, I, I think one of the great things about discussing things in Wales is that as we have done over the last couple of years, we've been able to look at some of the kind of bread and butter stuff and some of the kind of stuff that is on the ground affecting people's lives, but also is the kind of maybe uh, less less tabloidy stuff in Wales. And I think, you know, we've got uh, so much stuff ahead of us this year. Cost of living crisis is going to be huge. Healthcare is going to be huge. We obviously have all of the matters that are covered by local government is going to be dis debated in earnest over the next few months as we head towards the local government elections in May. And of course, Brexit is back, baby. We're going to be back discussing uh, the final detachment of the United Kingdom from the EU later this year in terms of trading. But also we have the UK government making some very interesting plans for what the future of the United Kingdom might look like. So I, th I think we have a lot to kind of look forward to in terms of grounding the debate away from you know, the shenanigans um, or the malarkey, as Joe Biden might say in, in Westminster. And I actually can't wait to, to do that. I think we've, we've got a lot of interesting stuff ahead. So uh, you know, in terms of sort of wrapping up for January, you know, how are, things, how are things standing at the end of January and looking forward to the rest of 2022, chaps? My, my January has been a write-off every which way. I've, I've had it up to here with RentSmart Wales, with HMRC. So I'm just looking forward to tomorrow and the start of February. And uh, things, for me, can only get better. Uh, I'm not sure we can say the same for Boris. We're still in 1997 again. Then, OK, great. Good. Matt, over to you. We're not in a good place politically, I don't think. Uh, sorry to really end on a very sour tone, but I just don't think that there's much public confidence in politicians or politics. And I think that is something we've really, really got to work on. You know, you're going to have elections in three and a bit months time. How happy are people going to be to have people knocking their doors, talking politics to them? Probably not very happy at all. And the damage that does to our engagement and the way we feel about politics, the way the public trusts politicians and trusts the way that the government works is, I, I think we're in, a, in for a really rough couple of years in terms of Oh, yeah, of public trust, just in public trust terms. I think it's going to be horrible. I don't think that trust is coming back, Matt. I, I think our, polit our current institutions and the way we do politics, something you've heard me bemoan over the last few years, I think it's gone. I, I don't think it can be rebuilt unless you completely change that structure. Oh, guys, don't, don't. <laughs> It's the end of January. It's the January blues are done with. Let's get on with the February reds. I don't know. Does that work? I don't know. Oh, that would work fine for you, wouldn't it, Matt? There we are. Okay. Yeah. Good fine. stuff. Um, uh, I, it's about leadership. People coming in. You know. Again, I'm. You know, I'm old. I remember how bleak things have been in the past, and uh, you know, it's always possible to change the way the direction of travel if you have people who can lead you and come up with a persuasive positive future and um you know we, it doesn't feel like it's Keir Starmer but I think we I think that we've seen you know certainly here in Wales we've seen hope over the last few years that there are plenty of other potential leaders in the wings um and um you know uh you know let, let's let's get in there with hope let's let's see if we can turn over a, a new leaf or whatever yeah, it's very interesting there hearing uh, member 1,997 of the Tony Blair fan club there, Richard Martin, talking about how optimistic things will be. I, I will add a caveat to my otherwise pessimistic note, which I do think that in Wales, people do trust Mark Drakeford. Um, and I think he has the potential to rebuild public trust in politics in Wales. But I think 
in the UK more broadly, it's, it is more where I was getting at. But yes, talking of happy, happy news, um, you may have seen on our social media that we've taken the decision to create a Patreon uh, and expand our offering and output. Uh, we want to just say thank you, really. The support we've received in the last year and a half has been incredible. And uh, listening to the podcast is the, all the support we ever needed from you. But of course, recording and hosting the pod does not come without cost. And with Wales's specific public service news and current affairs coverage increasingly under threat, it is more important than ever to ensure the sustainability of independent Welsh media. As such, we ask you, if you can, to consider supporting us with your pockets as well as your ears. Any contributions you make will be hugely appreciated by us at Hiraith, and they will not go without reward. Uh, every Patreon supporter will gain access to our Bidraith episodes, uh, which add additional analysis to episodes as well as regular Patreon-only mailbag episodes. Uh, those who contribute to our higher tiers will also be sent exclusive Hiraith merchandise and get discounted or even free entry to our live events when we are eventually allowed to do some of those again. But please consider uh, supporting us. Uh, it's a, been a fantastic year and a half here at Hiraith Towers, and we want to keep keep going and building an even stronger independent Welsh media and to do that, we we need your support. So, as always, thank you very much to Mr. Richard Martin. Where can everyone find you on Twitter, Rich? Was it? I said the other day. I said hello at this point. Yeah, you did. So, yeah, you did. Just so instinctively turning a microphone on. Hello, as always, um, uh, I am at Mimosa Cymru, and I, I will also uh, just for completeness uh, mention that the Patreon can be found at Patreon.com/HeroithPod. Just to uh, just Wonderful. to plug that. Thank you very much for that completeness. Mr. Davis, where can everyone find you on Twitter? I am Kerry the Viking. One day we'll find out why. And you can also find me, Matt Hexter, at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard now or in any of our other episodes, please do not forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Pod, or on our brand new shiny website, www.walespolitics.com. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.